It's been a frigid week in the capital region as the pandemic wears on. But the promise of Super Bowl snacks and Valentine's Day treats is definitely having a warming effect. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the top headlines. You can't say we're working on it. Um, That's not how FOIL works. We'll take a look back at 100 years of Democratic leadership in Albany. The longest, as far as I can tell, in American political history, one-party rule is Albany, now 100 years of Democrats. And Major League Baseball is finally recognizing Negro League statistics as official. These players were amazing. They were faster. They were more aggressive daring and quick players that just dazzled the crowds. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. All right, let's start with a look at what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. We are here with Casey Seiler, Times Union editor. We're going to go over the top headlines. It's been an eventful week, but let's start with some statehouse news. Uh, We're seeing more fallout from Attorney General Tish James's somewhat scathing report last week on the state's underreporting of nursing home deaths due to COVID-19. So what developments did we see this week there? Well, this week, I think the big news is the continued heat that the administration is taking and a ruling from a judge who said that the state had violated the Freedom of Information Law statute when it denied providing documents and data on deaths of nursing home residents to the Empire Center, which is a fiscally conservative think tank well-known at the Capitol. Bill Hammond, who is kind of a scholar in residence at the Empire Center working on healthcare issues, foiled for just very basic documents that the Department of Health should have been able to provide easily. They refused. They said, oh, we're working on it. We're trying to get accurate data and um, basically stonewalled him, prompting a legal action that the Empire Center brought. A judge said that you can't say we're working on it. Um, That's not how FOIL works. You You also can't say, oh, we're just trying to get the numbers right. You know, FOIL is a request for documents, um, you know, be they online or, or um, paper. Accuracy of a document or a database does not enter into it at all. It's just a ridiculous interpretation of FOIL law. So um, the administration under this uh, judge's order has five days to, to cough up the, the documents that the Empire Center asked for. We shall see if they are going to uh, do that or potentially appeal and continue their stonewall. Indeed. And you can follow the latest developments on that on our Capital Confidential blog at timesunion.com. Still on the topic of Governor Cuomo and the pandemic, a number of new vaccination sites are opening across the state this week. And what's the latest there? Yeah, correct. Bethany Bump reported that, among other outfits locally, St. Peter's Health Partners and Mohawk Ambulance Services are going around and setting up, as we described it, kind of pop-up vaccination sites 
especially working with homebound seniors, many of whom live in lower income housing uh, around the region. Unlike the, the sort of existing vaccination sites that a lot of people have been utilizing, you can't call up a central location to try and get a time. It is on the providers, in this case, St. Peter's and, and Mohawk Ambulance, to reach out to folks in the facilities that they know they're going to be visiting and setting up these pop-up sites at to let those, those people know when they're going to be coming in and when they can, they can get vaccinated. And it's a unique tool at the local level that's now being rolled out to assist in, you know, getting the vaccines in as many arms as they can. Well, that certainly seems like welcome news. Now, we will move down to Washington very briefly, where the House GOP is now keeping Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney in her leadership role. But that's notable for us chiefly because North Country Congresswoman Elise Stefanik was one of the names floated as a potential challenger from the far right. Uh, Can you give us a little more context on what happened there? Yeah, Liz Cheney, who, of course, very forcefully voted for um, the impeachment of uh, Donald Trump, spoke out about it, let it be known that this was the way that she was going to vote. There was a sort of effort to ouster that was launched by, uh, among others, Representative Matt Gates from down in Florida, who's one of the biggest uh, you know, MAGA members of the conference. Gates insisted that the, the votes existed in the conference to oust Cheney. That turned out to be not even close to true. She um, she survived this effort in a Wednesday night, uh, what sounds like a fairly dramatic meeting of the, the GOP House conference. But yes, uh, Elise Stefanik's name had been uh, bandied about in some circles as a potential replacement for Liz Cheney if she if she had in fact been bounced. Now we have to take this with a grain of salt. If you are a rising uh, Republican, and, and of course Elise Stefanik is rising in the ranks, she has um, done a lot of work to uh, to see women, uh, Republican women, elected to the House. It's of course always nice to be considered uh, in the hypothetical that you know what if Liz Cheney went away, but it's it's also whether or not there is there is truth to it or whether or not there are dozens and dozens of young or youngish Republican members of Congress who there's a lot of talk about perhaps talk prompted by them. Uh, it's an open question. It's sort of like me saying, you know, I'm I'm in the running to replace Marty Barron at the at the Washington Post. At, at least uh, that's what I'm hearing you know, which is, by the way, not true. (laughs) I hope not. We would be sad to lose you to Washington if that were true. Uh, Jumping on down to southern Florida very quickly, uh, two FBI agents were shot dead during a search operation outside Fort Lauderdale. And but one of the agents got his start in Albany. Can you tell us more about him? Yeah, terrible story, a a major loss of really kind of historic proportions in a single in a single act of violence like this. Two FBI agents killed one of them, as you know, Daniel Alfin, who was 36 years old, spent five years earlier in his career in the Albany field office. He was known for his work on uh, cases of child pornography and sex trafficking. He was a major player in a 2018, an operation that came to fruition in 2018 called Operation Pacifier, which shut down a particularly uh, ugly, grotty uh, corner of the web 
known as Playpen that was seen as globally one of the biggest online marketplaces for child pornography, but a, a terrible tragedy. And, and everyone who Rob Gavin spoke to about Special Agent Alphen um, had nothing but, but praise for him, said he was just a, an outstanding agent, a, a real loss. Now, unfortunately, moving on to another shooting, this one happened in Albany on Sunday night that resulted in the death of a pregnant woman and continues uh, something of a spate of violence in the city that kind of began last year. Um, Can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, Shanita Thomas, uh, who was 35 years old and, as Steve Hughes noted, was was pregnant when uh, last Saturday night she was shot. She was one of five people shot, but the only fatality at a party. She was described by a a friend of hers as being an outstanding mother, an aspiring nurse, and someone who, you know, supported friends' businesses within the community. Uh, Just a terrible story. A GoFundMe has been set up to uh, assist the family with funeral arrangements and to support her children as well. As you note, it's part of a, a kind of ongoing problem of gun violence, not just in Albany, but really across the, uh, the capital region, but one that obviously really hits home. Definitely. Very, very tragic. Uh, but let's move on to business news for now. Uh, Amazon opened its long-awaited store in Crossgates this week. It's first for the region, I think. Tell us more. Yeah, this is what's known as an Amazon four-star store. Um, they are described by an Amazon spokesperson as being highly curated, which means that essentially, you know, input from consumers determines what actually goes into the store. Of course, Amazon you know, is the biggest e-tailer, as they're known. Why in the world do you need a bricks and mortar store? And the response is that people love uh, the opportunity to feel and touch as uh, Drew Sheriff, who is Amazon's director of physical stores, um, said. He, he's quoted by, as saying, one of the benefits of having a physical store is that we can bring these things to life for customers. So it turns out that despite the quality of our friendship that is based uh, almost entirely or has been for the past year on Zoom meetings, it turns out that actually being in the physical presence of something uh, improves the consumer experience. So, Who knew? But uh, I personally do like to shop for clothes in person. That's really the only thing, though. Finally, let's touch on Black History Month. February is Black History Month. What is the Times Union doing to celebrate? Well, for each day of this month, we went back into our archives to pull out fascinating stories on uh, Black history in the region. It's a reminder of, you know, the incredible richness of Black history, which is one of challenge, success, artistic achievement, you know, sporting accomplishments, what have you. So each day of the month, folks can go to timesunion.com and check out the print copy of the paper and see another installment. And it's it's completely fascinating stuff going all the way back to well-known um, stories like, uh, of course, Henry Johnson, the World War I vet who waited uh, virtually a, a century to be uh, properly commended for his, uh, his bravery in Europe during World War I, to a 1961 visit by uh, Martin Luther King, who came to the region came to Albany and Schenectady to speak. I, I think that visit is, is not that well known, but it's completely fascinating. 
Well, we're looking forward to reading that. That'll be really exciting. We'll also have more coming up on this podcast about the Negro Leagues. Joyce Bassett is going to join us. Uh, Before we let you go, Casey, let's intro the next segment on this episode. There's a pretty significant milestone that we're reaching in Albany this year, 2021. uh, But I'll let you take it from here to introduce that. Well, Paul Grandal, who knows more about Albany political history than just about anybody except for any surviving ward healers out there, is the biographer of Erastus Corning II, who was the long time, and I mean like more than four decades serving mayor of Albany, noted that 2021 marks 100 years since Democrats seized control or at the ballot box took control of the levers of city power from a Republican machine and uh, have maintained what Paul estimates to be the um, longest running you know, single party control of a city in American history, or at least in current American history. You know, Chicago has its Democratic machines. Kansas City had its Democratic machine. Many smaller towns had theirs. But Albany's uh, machine, which of course has changed in terms of its personnel and its effectiveness in a lot of ways, has survived in one shape or another for a century this year. It's really a remarkable piece, and I really enjoyed talking to Paul about it. All right, here's part of your conversation with Paul. I love talking about politics. I love talking about capital region history, and I love talking to Paul Grandal. Uh, so, Paul, it's great to it's great to catch up with you and talk about your uh, column that ran in the Times Union on uh, Wednesday in print and is up online on TimesUnion.com, noting that 2021 marks uh, an auspicious anniversary in local political history, what is it? It's the 100 year anniversary that the democratic machine, the Democrats have controlled unbroken power in Albany. So 1921, there was a coal scandal in the winter of 1921. It turns out Republicans didn't deliver on $18,000 of coal that the city was billed for. And it turns out the Republican city officials got a nice delivery of coal free of charge Uh, at their homes and this fired up the city. And all of a sudden they jumped Republicanship to the Democrats because the Democrats were now the reformers, the do-gooders, the the people who, uh, you know, were not corrupt. And uh, we can talk about what's transpired over the next hundred years with the Democrats in control. Yeah, but 1921, uh, the first mayor was uh, uh, Hackett. You know, so we've only had six mayors in 100 years. Erastus Corning, you know, took 42 of them. But we've had Hackett, Thatcher, Corning, Jennings, and now Sheehan. It's it's a 100-year anniversary. I was talking to Bill Kennedy, and he said, really, is it 100 years? I said, yeah. And he said something like, longer than, than uh, the Bolsheviks or the communists or any other country in the world. So I started looking up, and we have all the cities beat. I thought Chicago's got us beat. They're 1930. I thought Boston's got us beat. They're 1931. So the longest, as far as I can tell, in American political history, one-party rule is Albany, now 100 years of Democrats. To go back to really sort of the the foundational figures and the most important figures, you've already mentioned um, both of them. Daniel O'Connell, who was the sort of behind-the-scenes mechanic who kind of kept the machine running for decades, 
and um, Erastus Corning II, who was, as noted, the longest serving mayor. Uh, has he been bested in in, uh, in U.S. history at this point? It's how you count it. You know, if you count it as a, as a significant sized city, he still holds that record. There are some little, you know, villages, hamlets and things that have broken through that mark. I think they still he still holds that mark of 11 terms. I mean, he died in office. We'll give him the crown. So if you could just sketch out who were these two men, who were they as they as they rose to power and, and who did they become? So the O'Connell family were a group of brothers, uh, grew up in the South End. Their father ran a saloon, which you can still see. Uh, there's a plaque there. There's one of the state historic plaques on South Pearl and Second uh, Avenue, I guess. They, they were the South Enders. You know, Dan O'Connell himself dropped out of school in fifth grade. One of his brothers uh, went on to Edward to become a lawyer in a prominent law firm, O'Connell and Aronowitz, which is still going in Albany. It was him. And, and then there was a brother, Solly, who was kind of, you know, night town, as Bill Kennedy called it, controlled gambling and, and horse rooms and things. So, so this family was, was that part of the city. It was the city's melting pot. Now the Corning family for multiple generations were Groton Yale, Groton Yale, you know, members of the Fort Orange Club, members of the, the upper class elite because the mayor's great grandfather, the original Erastus was the founder of the New York Central Railroad. So what I could never figure out when I was working on this biography of Mayor Corning, like how did these two groups get together? They wouldn't hang out at the same bars or the same clubs. And it turns out it was cockfighting. Dan O'Connell up in the Helderbergs, Beaver Town Road. I have walked through that house several times. I've walked out in the woods. He was noted as one of the great breeders of a great strain of fighting cocks, you know, illegal in that time too, as it would be now. Uh, and, and Narassus Corning, the blue blood Corning family, along with his father, who was Edwin Corning, who was Al Smith's Lieutenant Governor, uh, you know, and was the, the head of the Democratic Party for these years, they used to love cockfights and Dan O'Connell would stage cockfights at his Beaver Dam Roadhouse, and then he would supply illegal fighting hens, fighting cocks for fights throughout the city. And that's how these two groups got together, which is kind of interesting. What uh, do you think appealed to O'Connell beyond sort of the that sort of blue blood imprimatur that that Corning gave to him? What were the personal attributes that that you think uh, Corning represented for the value that he presented to the machine? So it was really Dan and Corning's father and Corning's father died young, unexpectedly following a massive heart attack. He was being groomed to be the next governor after Al Smith, 1928. Al Smith runs for president. There's gonna be a seat open in Albany in the executive mansion. Uh, it was all teed up for Mayor Corning's father, Edwin. He had a heart attack. They had to scramble for another candidate. And as Erastus II, the mayor used to say, my family changed the course of history. So when his father couldn't become governor and, and later died of a heart attack, they went and looked around. They found this young up-and-comer from Hyde Park, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. They set him up, and he became, obviously, one of the, the greatest presidents in our history. So the Corning family was always intertwined, and, and their strength was controlling business and politics and learning, as now, you know, big money in politics. Big money then came from the Corning family, the mayor's father owned Ludlam Steel, and the mayor's uncle 
Parker Corning, who was an eight-term congressman, he owned what became Albany International. It was then Albany Felt. So they had a lot of money, a lot of influence, and they sort of got into the game of politics when they met the O'Connells. And there's a, a very easy line drawn between cockfighting and politics, you know, both kind of blood sports. So you write in this week's column that there were, of course, a large number of people that the machine very much worked for, not just not just the political hacks, but you know, normal folks as well who benefited from the way that the machine operated, as well as numerous um, groups that were left out of the positions of power or essentially got the scraps. How would you describe both those on the inside who benefited and those on the outside who were left out. You know, they always like to show how efficiently it ran. And when you have no opposition, when you're a one party town for a hundred years, it's a lot like a company town. It's a lot like uh, Schenectady and GE when they used to employ 40,000 people or whatever. It's a lot like the Soviet Union, you know, Um, everyone knows how it works. You do what you're told, you will be rewarded. But there are a lot of people that didn't get a piece of it, the action, particularly Blacks in Albany, particularly Republicans, which were, they were the dominant party uh, right before the Democrats took over in 1921. So the people left out, not only didn't get a piece of the action, they were often, you know, the victims of, of jacking up a property assessment, or I found in Corning's papers many examples of somebody at a, at a mid or high level New York State, you know, administrative job, getting the letter from Corning saying, uh, I saw Casey Seiler uh, passing out leaflets for my challenger, Howard Nolan, please remove him from the civil service roles. I mean, that blatant, they, they could, you know, get you uh, disappeared from your rising state career with that kind of letter. So they had the power in the machine that, that made it insidious. You know, they controlled the district attorney's office. They controlled every layer of judgeship. They controlled the grand jury process you know, that there was no such thing as a democracy in a sense or due process when they were at their height. Machines tend to become more decrepit and um, more uh, tyrannical in their, in the way they deploy their power as they go on. And you've noted that there is a, a, certainly a good case to be made that that happened more and more once you got into the 60s and 70s, and then of course into the 80s when the machine was really kind of breaking down, especially with the the death of Erastus Corning. Right, I mean, I give a lot of credit to our newspaper, the Times Union. You know, they did a lot of critical watchdog investigative reporting that the machine did not like. The reason that our office is now on Wolf Road is tied up in politics. You know, we are on Sheridan Avenue and they needed a piece of property to expand the presses. And it was property owned by the county, which was Dan O'Connell's county, and they wouldn't give it to the Times Union. So the Times Union said, "Okay, we can play hardball, too. We're going to move out of the city. At that time, that was a thousand jobs in that newspaper office moved out to Colony. So, you know, if you cross them, there was often hell to pay. And uh, the the Times Union, particularly publisher Gene Robb in the 60s, he's, he's since deceased. But he stood up to the machine and paid a price. They took 
uh, the advertisement, the, the um, legal ads from the Times Union, they sort of held that up as a carrot and stick and, and the Hearst Corporation stood up and said, go ahead and take your legal ads. You know, they said, we're not going to give you the piece of property. Go ahead. We'll move out to Colony. So they really showed a lot of backbone, a lot of grit to stand up. For example, I came to the paper in, in 1984 and uh just sat beside some great reporters, you know, skills that I don't have, uh, investigative reporters. We've got some great investigative reporters now, but they were doing stories of the city uh, ordering, you know, a hundred brooms for $89.99. And you're looking, wait a minute, I can go down to Ace Hardware or Home Depot now or whatever and get a broom for $12.99. It was all documented. And uh, that moment to the mayor, what's going on? No bids. What, you know, why are we paying 10 times the price we should be paying when the city's got fiscal problems? He said, I like doing business with my friends. It was like, oh, okay. And that was the end of it. You know, people were sort of indoctrinated in this machine where, where Corning controlled everything. I mean, we were the last city in the state, if not the country, to have an elected school board. It was his buddies. He likes doing business with his friends. So let's make the education system, all the schools, the greatest patronage mill we have, which it was, you know, you had to be on the good side of the machine to get a job in the school system. Last question, the differences between Kathy Sheehan and Erastus Corning. I mean, what does Kathy Sheehan lack, not, not in terms of, you know, a, a, any kind of personal political failings or anything like that, but what tools does she not have? What levers simply are not there for her to work anymore? Because while there is democratic dominance in Albany, it is not anything like the sort of all-encompassing mojo that a, that a real well-oiled political machine has. Yeah, I think one is, is transparency. Mayor Corning was brilliant. He was top of his class at Groton and Yale, rather, with, with some of the great figures like Joseph Alsop was a classmate and uh, Richard Bissell, the number two guy in the CIA. And he was top of his class, brighter than all of them. And, and he would personally do the budget. It'd be like, Mayor, where's the budget? And he'd pull out, you know, the back of an envelope. And that's how it was done. And, you know, that, that's not going to fly anymore. The second thing is I think people were preconditioned in that era to go along with it. There was a great term that came up in, in my research. There was a Harvard dissertation written in the 1950s by William Rowley, who created the journalism program at Albany, And he coined the term patroon psychology. So the patroon was our feudal lord, you know, I mean, the colonists came over, gave you a little land and you agreed to send back, uh, you know, whatever you grew, whatever you made. And, and it was a surf kind of arrangement. Well, his feeling is because of that, going back to the 17th century, Albanians are kind of preconditioned to follow like sheep, this overlord. And in a way it's true. I mean, we're a company town. When you look at county, state, and city employees and how many that employs. We're a company town, government is our business. And uh, so I think there's something to be said that when you're in a state capital, that people are sort of ready to be led because it's their livelihood. So I think Kathy Sheehan no longer has that kind of control. It's a different city. I mean, she's looking at a city of approaching 40% people of color, you know, 28, 29% black, nine, 10% Hispanic. That was not the city of Bear Corning's time. 
We've also lost a lot of population that peaked at 145,000 in the night, early 1960s or so. We're now at like 95 or 97. And, you know, the demographics and the, the ethnic and racial uh, makeup has, has completely changed. So it's a different city and people are more independent minded and they demand transparency. You know, you, you couldn't do it with a few people. There are many people that call the machine and other machines like Curly in Boston or Daly in Chicago, they call them oligarchies or, or really not unlike, you know, Putin's kind of control in, in Russia right now. So I, I don't think it, it happens, but in a way it's the same. And certainly under Jennings, you know, who just preceded Kathy Sheehan, I think he was very much uh, in the mold of a of machine. And he talks about that in the story that I interviewed him. I mean, I, I was there we walked around his neighborhood right before he retired. I mean, his father ran a saloon in the North end, you know, Dan O'Connell's ran a saloon in the South end. They're actually both on Pearl street. You know, he, he grew up around this organization and Kathy Sheehan didn't, she didn't grow up in Albany. You know, she was a corporate lawyer before this. It's a different kind of mindset, but to some extent, I think it still does exist. Um, you look at some of the names, and they're like second or third generation of O'Connell Corning people, the Joyce's, the, you could name more of them, but it is changing. We now have a black common council president. You know, it took 327 years to get the first woman mayor. We still haven't had a, a mayor of color, but the city is changing. And I think people are much more independent, sophisticated. I don't think they'd be led around like uh, serfs by the patroons anymore. To hear more of that fascinating discussion, check out our sister podcast, Capital Confidential, available wherever you get your podcasts. After the break, the MLB is finally recognizing the Negro Leagues as a major league. What does this mean for the Capital Region teams of the early 20th century? You'll see. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and war. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. This past December, Major League Baseball made a major announcement. They'd finally include statistics from the Negro Leagues of the early 20th century in their official records. As part of our Black History Month features, sports reporter Joyce Bassett took a look through the Times Union archives to find the paper's coverage of the Capital Region Negro League teams when they played in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. I spoke with her to find out more about what she found. Can you give me a brief explanation of of what happened in December? The MLB recognized the Negro Leagues officially. Now, what does that mean? 
So yeah, they announced that they will adjust records and rankings to reflect recognizing the Negro Leagues. So in, uh, there were 3,400 players in the major leagues of the Negro Leagues from 1920 to 1948. And so they will use a service to incorporate some of those records and rankings into Major League Baseball's record book. That sounds like it's going to be a daunting process. Yes, I, um, I've been reading up on it. And um, the only reason they were able to announce that they could do it is because uh, there was a, a group of baseball fans that got together and compiled many of the stats by going through newspapers, basically, and uh, finding box scores for all these teams. And the, the records are were out there. They feel confident that they have been able to put together most of the records, but it wasn't until this past year that they decided to incorporate them. Tell me more about the Negro Leagues. What? How exactly were they composed? Their heyday was from 1920 to 1948, and that's when the stats will be um, eligible for inclusion in Major League Baseball. In the early 1900s, they had teams a lot of teams would come and go just like now, you know, the Valley Cats came and went and um, we had the Albany Senators and they were here and they, they left. So it was just a league that evolved over this time period when segregation was, you know, and they didn't enable players to play with the major leagues. So they just formed a league of their own and did it anyway. You know, one of the things that uh, people tend to realize when looking back, on these records and talking to, you know, researching the play at the time was that these players were amazing. They were faster, they were more aggressive, daring, and quick players that just dazzled the crowds that were mostly white and just um, the, the recognition is long overdue. I'm guessing racism was a huge part as well of why it took so long for Major League Baseball to do this, right? Segregation up until, you know, the mid 1940s, 1950s forced black players to form their own leagues. And then even getting into the major leagues after that, after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in 1947, it was a very slow process. And so, you know, Jim Crow laws and all kinds of things just really you know, led to a lot of these records being suppressed or not carefully collected. For a long time, the athletes have realized that the athletes that came out of the Negro Leagues were incredible athletes and should be recognized in the Hall of Fame. And it's just taken this long to get it together. So tell me about some of those athletes. I know we had some pretty amazing local teams here in the Capital Region. Can you talk about those? Those teams were actually kind of like the Valley Cats are now to the major leagues. So they, the local teams, uh, the Mohawk Giants, they played um, in Schenectady on Island Park and Mohawk Park, which is um, right off of Route 5 there near Freedom Park now. And then there was a team in Albany called the Albany Black Sox, which um, played for many years in the Negro Leagues, but then also played in the Twilight League, which actually still exists today. And those were feeder teams into the major league Negro Leagues. 
So we had a player on the Albany Black Sox, actually whom the stadium, the Bleecker Stadium, is named after. Can you tell me about Edsel Walker? Oh, yes. Edsel Walker. You know, I would love to do more research to see if he has a chance to actually be recognized as a player in the Hall of Fame when this is all said and done. But uh, yeah, he started, he's from Catskill. He started with the Albany Black Sox and then immediately went over and played for one of the most famous teams in Negro League Baseball, the Homestead Grays. They played out of Pittsburgh and Washington, D.C. And he played during the heyday of the the Negro Leagues. And it was uh, from 1936 to 1945 that he played. And his stats can be found online. They've been compiled by these people who put together all the stats for the Negro League. So it'll be interesting to see if he actually makes it into the Hall of Fame as a player. Now, he also played with some of the the greats of the Negro League that, you know, people know, you know, household names like Satchel Paige, right? Yes. Cool Papa Bell was on his team and uh, Josh Gibson as well. When all of these statistics are compiled and, you know, all of the statistics are compared to the statistics on record, do you think we'll get a very different picture of Major League Baseball history and Major League Baseball statistics? They will probably incorporate some into the record and it will be a very gradual process. And it it might impact some major stats that people, you know, throw off the top of their head. I know batting average for a season is one of the ones that might change as a result of this. But, um, you know, it's all up to the Elias Sports Bureau, which is putting together, blending the records that are found now online with Major League Baseball records. Wow. So we'll have uh, that to look forward to. Uh, Long overdue acceptance of the Negro League statistics here. Yeah. What they said was more than likely some of the players that are already in the Hall of Fame, like Willie Mays, he'll get Mm -hmm. more hits. And Hank Aaron, he'll get more hits. Don Newcomb, a pitcher, he'll get more wins. So, And same with Satchel Paige. So it will certainly add on to their legacies. That's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Albany Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. 